Welcome to the Radical Global Marketing Podcast. In each episode, we go deep with the world's leading international marketers and discuss the ideas and processes that make their global marketing strategies a success. Let's get radical. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the latest Radical Global Marketing Podcast. My name is Stephen, one of your regular co-hosts, and today we've got a special episode with a very special guest indeed. I am delighted to be joined by Kai Geibner. Kai is the Managing Director of APM Terminals Crane and Engineering Services. He's a hugely experienced, dynamic and innovative business leader working in a fascinating sector and he's currently spearheading a really exciting period of marketing strategy and development and we're very pleased to have him on the show. Um, Kai will talk about that much better than I can in just a minute but first a quick word from our sponsor. The Radical Global Marketing Podcast is produced in association with Brandigo China. Brandigo's team of local and international marketing talent has been helping multinational brands achieve marketing success in China for almost two decades. This is founded on their unique, radically relevant China marketing methodology, built on insight, creativity, and flawless execution across multiple China marketing channels. To find out more about Brandigo China and how they can help your brand meet your China business objectives, visit brandigochina.com or get in touch with the Brandigo China team via social media or email, and we'll put all of the links in the show notes. Kai, hi, how are you? Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. No, thank you very much. I was really excited when you you said you'd come on and do this, so I'm I'm really happy to have this conversation. Same here. So we're actually sat together for a change. Usually I have to do these things remotely, but we're both in Shanghai, so we get to do it face-to-face. Why don't we start things off? Would you just give us a little insight into your career journey today? How did we end up being in this room, I guess? Yeah. So my career journey started in Germany. Um, I'm an engineer by education. And what you do as a German engineer, you join one of the large companies, which was Siemens back then. But um, pretty soon I realized that I don't want to do the job that my boss was doing back then. So I decided after six months to quit my job. And uh, I flew to Beijing because I just thought that Asia is a little bit more interesting. And then I applied uh, for a local position at um, Siemens in, in Beijing, in China. What sector was that at the time? Were you in similar to sector now or different sectors in engineering? There was a automation uh-huh. engineering. Uh, uh, and there was obviously much more happening in, uh, in China. Um, and uh, yeah, I just thought that, that uh, this is an interesting move. I, I, I really didn't think about you know, whether that's a smart move to do, right? But it was a very naive move in my view, but it was the best decision in my life. Obviously, my, my, my salary was substantially lower than many people thought I'm a bit crazy, but for me, it was more about you know, doing what I like to do. Uh, and that was just working and living in a more interesting or different country. And then I, um, Worked in Beijing for two and a half years. Uh, I then moved to Shanghai, continued uh, working for Siemens, also as a project manager. And then after five years, I changed to a Swiss company where I headed up the business development and strategy department for their China operations. Uh, I did that for two years. And after that, I joined uh, the Maersk Group, which I'm currently still working with. Maersk is uh, one of the largest uh, container transportation and logistics company in the world. And I joined them in their procurement function. And I did that for three years in Shanghai. And then I got the opportunity to move to Barcelona in Spain to continue that job, but also to 
do some post-merger integration of a company that we just recent, recently acquired and that uh, that was based in Barcelona. So uh, that's where I went and it was a great time in there, but it was very short because after a year, um, I was asked to move to our headquarters in, in The Hague in the Netherlands, uh, where I took um, over the responsibility for the global procurement of ABM terminals. And that is a company that belongs to Maersk and that basically runs all the 70 container uh, terminals in, in the world. I did that for three years and uh, then I felt the need again to move back to, to China because I, I just find Shanghai an absolutely fabulous uh, city and uh, I see it more as uh, my center of living uh, with my family. And that's why we moved, uh, we moved back uh, roughly two years ago. Just, just before the lockdown, so just, <laughs> just in time, <laughs> just in time to spend the first six months indoors. Exactly, exactly. So uh, it was actually quite interesting because um, first uh, I was in Europe, um, and when 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 COVID broke broke out, and um, obviously that was a lot of uh, working from home and a lot of restrictions. And then when I moved to China, it was like you know I was back to total freedom. And and when I arrived in China, I posted all my friends. And family in Europe that uh, you know now that I'm China you know I'm I'm I'm, I'm free again. <laughs> <laughs> Famous last words. Yes, um, but then you know that uh, turned around quite quickly. But um, yeah, it was okay, right? So I didn't suffer too much during that lockdown. And I understood why they were doing that and just go through it. So making that decision when you were sat back in Germany for that first stage of your career, making that decision to jump to China has opened up this huge international experience for you working with international businesses working for teams from all over the place there's obviously challenges and opportunities that come from that but it sounds your experience has been overall positive absolutely and i could only encourage everybody to live and work abroad right for an extended period of time it's not only that you learn a lot about the new country you also learn a lot about your own country Mm -hmm. yeah what's good about it what's not so good and they're all good and bad things Everywhere, in every sure. company, in every country. And it just like brings you a much broader perspective in general. And uh, that's why I think it, it, it is very, very good. And I can only encourage everybody, especially young people. Yeah, I can care with that. that. I think like you've got a younger family and being able to give them the opportunity to experience international lifestyle early is a huge privilege and incredibly rewarding. So let's move on a little bit now to, to the current business. Obviously, you, you briefly introduced that, but can you give us a little bit more detail about what um, CES does and specifically about your role within the organization as managing director? Yeah. So first, uh, Maersk Group uh, has several business units. The first uh, and the most important is obviously the container shipping part of the business. So many of our listeners may know these MERS containers and these large vessels. But there's another business unit that is not so much known. This is the container terminal business unit. So we don't only run the, the, the shipping part of the business, but we also run the container terminal uh, business, so the ports. And there we have more than 70 ports uh, across the globe. And we are probably the largest container global container uh, operator in, in, in the world. And we are on every continent. And uh, Crane and Engineering Services is a subcompany that belongs to uh, APM Terminals, and it is basically a global technical function that takes care of quality assurance, project management, and the most complex technical services that we conduct across all of our 
70 container terminals around the world. So break that down a little bit. So for someone like me, who's a complete layman, what does that look like? Is that managing equipment? Is it designing and building equipment, ensuring lifestyle, life cycle, sorry, terminals and things like that? So there are two, two business areas that we cover. The first is whenever any of our container terminal around the world buys new equipment. And this equipment are massive cranes, right? These are one of the largest steel structures in the world. And they cost something between 10 to 15, 16 million US dollar per piece. Whenever uh, these container terminals buy any of this equipment, most of the time they buy it out of China, right? Because here you just have the manufacturing sector with the largest capacity and the largest scale by far. When that happens, um, it's usually a very long process. So it takes like two years roughly to get from contract signature for such equipment to having this equipment arrive on site, let's say in South America, put it in the port and make it up and running. So that, that process takes around two years. And what we are responsible for is everything from the contract signature to the operational okay. handover. So we ensure that the quality is correct throughout the production, that the entire process is properly managed with these suppliers, that we also get the equipment on time and uh, that, that this entire process is handled in a, in a standardized way, right? Because we do this for each of our terminals. Last year, we've handled more than 100 of these large um, cranes of the largest, and then there are also some several hundreds of uh, the smaller ones. So we, to put it in monetary terms, it's roughly between one to two billion US dollar of uh, CapEx equipment that wow. we deliver in any given year. Uh, that's the first part of the business, so all the new stuff. When you have 70 container terminals with all this equipment, this equipment is, is supposed to last 20 to 25 or 30 years. Uh, and after some time, there are certain things, uh, certain technical services that are very high complexity that that no container terminal can do by themselves. Just to give an example, the vessel sizes of, of these container vessels, they are growing substantially in size, meaning that the cranes also need to grow in size. Sure. But if you spend a lot of money on that and it's supposed to work 20 years, then, then what do you do? Then what actually happens is that you need to extend the height of these cranes. So you cut all the legs and then you you, you elevate uh, this entire crane by, let's say, 10 or 15 uh, meters. And that is a very, very complex sure. undertaking. right? Um, and then you do that throughout operations. And these are, for instance, things that, that, that we do. Because these are technical services that happen across each terminal, but none of the terminals actually has the technical capability to conduct these kind of sure. jobs. It's fascinating. You and I have been speaking for a little while now, and I do. I find this industry genuinely interesting. I think part of it is because I come from this marketing agency background, and we've got this one perception of what we do. People think it's cool. We all sit behind Max, and it is, and I love it. But I love talking with gentlemen like yourself as well because it's big stuff. It's kind of proper stuff that, that I, I don't know. I just find it. I find it fascinating. The whole engineering element because it's so different from what I do on a day-to-day -day basis as well. Um, so coming back again to that a little bit, you, you've spoken about some, you've given us a really nice insight into how the industry sort of operates. What are some of the bigger challenges, I guess, that the industry as a whole is facing at the moment? And, and follow from that, what would be some of the opportunities? So 
First of all, you know, this is, this industry is not the most sexy, I would say. It's actually a bit of a challenge to attract people, right? So you don't wake up and say, Hey, I, I want to do something in container terminals, but it's actually quite, quite, quite interesting, you know, in, in, uh, indeed. But, um, some of the challenges that we've seen. So there's a lot is changing and. This has also to do with the fact that our industry is very much related to governments, right? So we obviously, one of our customers is all the shipping lines, mm -hmm. uh, but the other customer is all the governments. Yeah. So when we invest, for instance, when we build new terminals, we invest with an outlook of 50 years investment because we basically rent the area of the port for 50 years. We can operate a port there for 50 years. We build all the equipment there, run the port, and then after it's 50 years are over, after the concession is over, we either extend it or we need to hand it over back to the government. Mm -hmm. So usually we are active in absolute early stages of any country's development. So we operate, for instance, in a lot of countries that, that are very, very early in their, in their development because in, in the first stage it starts with infrastructure. So this generally complicates a little bit our business environment because also with the current geopolitical situation, it's becoming a bit more tricky uh, to make these long-term bets and knowing where to invest and, and, uh, and where not. But also a bit more recently, what has happened is that after COVID, after many of these central banks pumped trillions uh, into the economy, what happened was that is that there was just a massive influx of investments after COVID. So the demand for new equipment, the demand for growth, the demand for building new container terminals in all kinds of countries just absolutely skyrocketed. And uh, that demand vastly uh, outstripped the capacity to produce that kind of equipment. And the way it usually goes, right? sales, uh, they're always happy to sign a contract, um, not really caring about... Uh, whether whether their colleagues have the capacity to deliver on that, but that's exactly what happened. So 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 many of the suppliers they, they of these crane manufacturers they actually accepted much more orders than they have capacity to produce, which created a massive amount of delays in the entire industry. And um, if if you imagine right, like if you build a port, that's usually an investment of five hundred million US dollars to one billion. Mm -hmm. If you are late by six months in putting this in operation, that's a massive cost. Sure. So, and, and obviously my company being responsible for this, we've just seen a massive surge in terms of demand. Um, and we had all these issues to, to deal with. And we, we were responsible to make sure that the suppliers deliver on time. And, and we simply saw that they, they are accepting 50% more orders than they have capacity. So that was a very challenging situation, um, in the, in the industry. Um, another thing, um, is uh, also what we see more and more is this kind of a bifurcation of the industry. So that, and especially because we are critical infrastructure. So we are infrastructure that governments care about. Yeah. So for instance, in the United States, you have seen that there were certain legislations being to the, being brought to the Senate in which cranes that are being only produced in China are being labeled as spy cranes. So they're basically being used by China to spy on the traffic and the transport um, in the United yeah. uh, States. So, so you see more and more that for high technology, whether it's data, whether it's automation, that governments are actually bringing in new legislation to 
avoid certain risk out of national uh, security concerns. It's interesting. And at the same time, it's nearly impossible to get away from these supply chains because no other country, whether it's in Europe or in the United States, actually has any experience, any capacity to produce this kind of equipment at that scale or at that cost mm-hmm. um, and even at that quality that you now actually get out of uh, China. So the industry is really challenged by that, um, but there's no alternative. Yeah. Uh, and 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 uh, we need to go now through. Okay, how do we actually deal with this? And we believe that there is a, a bifurcation, especially with the more sophisticated technology with regards to AI automation, um, that that will really you know complicate uh, things in in our industry. But we also have some interesting challenges. So obviously, we are not the cleanest industry, right? Uh, first, as Maersk, we have well. 10% of the global CO2 emissions actually come from the global transportation industry. Mm-hmm. And the big portion of that is, for instance, the container vessels, yeah. right? So, immersed. so we need to completely change the, the way we run our vessels. And we have more than 700 container vessels you know, floating around and they all burn dirty fuel. So how do you change all this um, in, a, in a time span of less than 10 years? We have committed to carbon neutral by 2040. Cosmers, that means by 2040, we basically need to either completely change or retrofit all these existing vessels with new biofuels mm-hmm. or all the new equipment that we buy needs to be, be able to run on green uh, biofuels. And the same is what we do also for the container terminal industry. How do you basically change such a massively asset-heavy industry where you bought equipment that's supposed to last for 20, 30 years and now halfway through, you kind of need to change it, right? Mm-hmm. You need to, to change it from you know, diesel-based sometimes uh, and and uh, make it carbon neutral. And we in APM Terminals, we want to reduce our carbon emissions by 70% by 2030. That's that's basically like six years. Yeah. It's And we have, uh, yeah, we have several hundreds of these assets. So this is very, very costly, right? But it's also very complex. But we are committed to that. And uh, and this is, this is what we do. And obviously, this is where we, as CS, also play an important role kind of facilitate this transition to identify what are new suppliers that we need to work with, what is new technology, or battery technology, for instance, to actually um, enable that, uh, that uh, transition. Yeah, and, uh, and that actually leads to a big shakeup in the industry when it comes to emergence of new players. And I, I always like to compare that to the current developments in the electrical vehicle industry. You see that the Chinese EVs, they're just much more advanced mm-hmm. than the Western EVs. Yeah, for sure. And the capacity also yeah. locally in China is substantially higher than the demand, which will lead to the fact that um, if you don't increase the demand in China, then the only way to compensate for that is to, to export. And that's what's happening now in the EV sector, that these companies are going to flood the Western markets. And this is, you know, there's a lot of uh, concerns around that. But these... You know, these vehicles, they are actually very good quality and they, they are from better technology better right, than, than the Western alternatives. And you see exactly the same happening in, in our industry. Interesting. So, so this is, a, this is really going to shake up the, the way how all the global players in these industries have been positioned, right? So this is a, this is an industry where not many things change, but they, they shift towards electrification basically completely changes who are the right players or who are the players that will be successful in the future. 
And I really see how many Western and European companies, especially because this is still where some manufacturing happens, if they don't get their act together, they will disappear. Or if they're not protected by, let's say, European governments, they will disappear. Mm -hmm. Because they're way too slow in the innovation. They are at least twice as expensive as the the Chinese. And their capacity is maybe a tenth tenth of what, what they can deliver here. So this is this is going to massively disrupt the, the the world, and I think we're only at the very very beginnings of this trend. And I believe that 2024 and 2025, you will hear a lot more of this kind of talk, where especially Europe um, will try to protect itself from the influx yeah. of, um, of of this uh, massive capacity coming out of China. Interesting. And this is. And, and we are basically sitting in the middle of that because we are really trying to take care and even develop these Chinese suppliers. Because for us, it's also important as a company to ensure that you, you need to cooperate with, with the winners of the future. And at the same time, we need to deal with the geopolitical risk and the supply chain yeah. risk. Right? So you don't want to put all your eggs into one basket. But in the end, right, at least what I've learned over time, money and really makes the decisions and nobody's truly willing to pay 10 or 20 or 30 percent more if you can have it less expensive so so um that's going to be really interesting so but it's fascinating and like i said i wasn't trying to pull when i was saying that it's a fascinating industry i was being genuine and it, and it really is and it ties to so many of the broader global issues that i think all businesses are looking to navigate at the moment what i'd like to do just for the next couple of questions is we mentioned at the top of the show that you're spearheading, I think, this drive towards how your business is approaching marketing a little bit differently. And I think it's fair to say that, that what I'm trying to say is, I think it's fair to say that perhaps the inspiration for that has come from how you position yourselves to take advantage of opportunities and also face down those challenges. So what I'm, I'm interested in hearing is just a little bit about, from your point of view, how, how your marketing and communications fits into this strategy moving forward yeah so so first i took over this role a bit more than a year ago right? and we are very very technical uh, company and most of our employees are technical employees average tenure in in the company is 15 years and they have usually up to 20 years of technical experience so so they they really know their stuff sure they're hardcore technical uh, guys and that is I really want to do a podcast <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's a big <laughs> strength but but there's also a downside that that usually technical people they don't tend to boast about stuff they don't like to talk so much about uh, themselves what they do and this company is just doing an absolute fabulous job since nearly two decades right so we have delivered more than 1300 cranes um to to the entire industry, right? And I don't even know how many billions of US dollars these are. But people didn't really think about how to tell the great stories around that, yeah. how to market yourself better. And, and, and the problem really is, in any company, in my view, is you, whatever you do, you always need to market yourself, whether you like it or not. If you don't do it, the perception of you will be substantially different than if you actually take active efforts to talk a little bit about what you do, right? All the great things, you know, and, and just t- spend some time on that. And I also believe that you can actually be worse in what you do, but if you market yourself, you come across 
as better than you actually are. As compared to you're doing a great job and you never talk about it. So nobody knows what you do. Yeah. And then the perceptions build up that, well, I don't know who that is and what this team does. And so I, I really believe that um, you need to actively talk about the good things that you do. And I've just seen that uh, this company hasn't done that to the extent they needed to. Uh, and also that they actually deserve because there's absolute fabulous uh, value add. Um, and, and that just, that just has to happen. So first, that's the first thing. So we first need to really talk about all the good stuff and really get us back on the stage in terms of, um, proving the, the massive business value that we, that we add and on all the good things that we do and, and how we can really help uh, the wider, the wider business and the entire industry. The second thing is regarding navigating a little bit the more complex business global business environment and the challenges and the opportunities that come from that so what that means is that obviously from a political perspective right, things are getting a little bit more dicey and complicated but also believe that business have a responsibility to uh, bridge countries cultures uh, and and have a more positive impact and make sure that uh, we really do the right thing. And what that means, for instance, if you want to do a transition towards green technology, you know, there is no way around China. And you can have all kinds of opinions about that yourself. And there's a lot of opinions floating around also in our organization. But this is sometimes just unsubstantiated or based on, let's say, maybe not a full understanding of the situation. And I just believe that um, the company will lose out massive opportunities if we don't get our heads around how to better utilize the right business partners wherever they may be placed in the world and in my view i also believe that it's really uh, there's a lot of education required um, in the industry but also towards my own let's say mother company in Maersk and apm terminals where we, through our marketing efforts from a technical perspective, also as a technical expert and being the company that is headquartered also in, 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 in Shanghai, to have a bit of a, a voice of what are the opportunities that we actually see here with our supplier base? What is about technology, right? So look at battery technology, for instance. We just need to talk about uh, how much more advanced this is here than in, 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 uh, in the West. We just need to, as a company, we need to build on that. And obviously, we need to do this in a resilient way and we don't put all our eggs in one basket. But if we don't do that, we're just going to lose out. And it's the same with automation. Uh, the, the progress on automation and container terminals in China is substantially better than it is in the West. So we need to figure out and benefit from the massive innovative capacity um, that we see, for instance, in the Asian world for companies that are headquartered, for instance, in, in Europe or operate uh, globally. And this is really also a bit of a higher level uh, ambition that I have is, is that we have a, a second voice around this, that we communicate the opportunities and the massive uh, business value that we can bring from companies that are located here and that are just uh, extremely innovative and, and bringing that really back to the, to the headquarter and bringing that also to the entire industry. And obviously, everybody can then make their own decisions if they want to work with that or not. That's fine. But uh, uh, I just see it as, a, as, an, as an obligation as a company to, to try to bridge these gaps. So it's, it seems from an outside perspective looking in, there's, there's two strands to this. There's, there's sort of the, the, there's the thought leadership 
strand, positioning your business, your team as experts, as the industry as a whole takes on some of these big issues that they're working with. But there's also an advocacy element to it as well, based on your experiences, based on your team's experiences of where you're located and where you're based. And we've, we've talked a lot about China and advocating for that, but it's broader than that too. It's, as you yes. said earlier, it's wherever that pool of expertise or opportunity, you should be open to exploring it. It's just at the moment, that feels like it's where you are in Shanghai. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's a very good, uh, that's a very good summary. And maybe to add to that, and coming back to the point that I made before, that the entire supplier landscape is changing. So what we are also do. We are, we are a third-party inspector. So if any company ever decides to spend, let's say, 500 million US dollars to work with a new supplier that is somewhere based in Asia, that's a massive risk. Mm-hmm. Right? So they need to work with companies like ours, or like, 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 like mine, to, to basically mitigate that risk. Yeah. And since there are more and more new suppliers popping up, uh, and uh, this is just, of course, also for, for, for us very important to, to communicate that, look, we know this change is coming. We know there will be a lot of new players. We know that if you want to invest in this, it's, it's, it's a bit of a risk. You need to mitigate that. But we are here to help you in this, in this uh, process, right? And we are already established everywhere. We speak the language, right? We know the technical details. We can help you with all that, no matter which uh, supplier that is. And, and, and that is, um, I think really what sets us apart, uh, which, which ultimately will become really important because the more you will see this technical divide, you will actually end up with different kinds of technical standards, right? Like, like in the, like in the, in the Cold War. It, it really sounds a bit funny, but that's where we're going. Yeah. And it's already happening, like since several years. And we see more and more indications that we are further, further going into this. So if you are a Western company or especially <clears throat> a Western company that operates globally, and you want to buy some stuff out of Asia, which is currently the only place where you can buy that stuff, you need to be able to speak their language. You need to be able to, you know, figure out whether you can work with their standards or not, right? It, it, there will be two, two worlds. And basically, I think that uh, we will establish ourselves as that global technical center in, in Asia for, for our company that can deal with all these specifics in, in this, in this region and help, um, still support, um, uh, our growth plans for our mother company um, in in uh, in benefiting from the innovative and manufacturing capacity that you have in this part of the world. So just to bring it back again to marketing just a little bit, with all of these new players popping up all over the place, is that led to a is is that led to a step change in how the industry markets itself? I mean, my basic question is: Do you think this industry is good at marketing? Um, it's a bit of a mixed bag. But generally, I would say this industry is not good at marketing. It's a very relationship-based industry. Yeah. It's relatively small. People know each other, and they always have been doing things in a certain way. And and you know they're just a bit complacent. But again, right, this this is being disrupted now. What I generally see is that the Western companies are pretty good in their marketing efforts, whether it's American companies or European companies. That is going pretty well. What I see is that Chinese companies are pretty terrible, in my view. <laughs> It's, they usually have very good products, very good services, right? Sometimes even much better than the Western. And they, they actually have true products available, right? At scale already now. And they have so many, uh, references. They have developed so much, but they just don't talk about it. Whereas in, in the West, you see, you know, there's a lot of marketing that's ahead of the, the, the product management, right? So they, 
they, they market products that they, they don't even exist. Yeah. And um, and that's really a bit of a problem in the industry where I think this just needs needs a step change. And I also discussed with uh, with you guys that I'm really interested in in shaking this industry a little bit up. It's kind of too boring. Um, they, they need to have a little bit of disruption from a from a marketing branding and marketing perspective and and spice this up a bit Um, and i think you know that's the beauty about some of these a little bit more boring or less known b2b uh, sectors Um, there's a lot of room for um, disruption it's it's really easy to get yourself known very quickly Right, just by applying certain marketing approaches and strategies from, uh, let's say, more marketing heavy or maybe more consumer based uh, businesses and apply this in the B2B sector. And people like that, right? Yeah. Just so You're not going to get any argument from me on that. <laughs> so, looking back then, let's just think about uh, innovation as a topic to discuss. Um, what are the sort of big things that your company is getting to grips with at the moment? Yeah, when it comes to innovation, I think this is ex- extremely important for any business as a whole uh, because ultimately um, it's all about productivity right? productivity is the single most important thing that brings any kind of company or industry forward and you continuously need to work on increasing your productivity and the best way to do that is by the use of new technology however what i'm focusing right now is first i need to fix a little bit the basics and get the standards and the structures in place but once you have that and once your business is uh, standardized and has a, uh, a standard way of working right and a standard way of utilizing data and information then you are ready to apply these new fancy technologies whether that's automation digitization right ai so, so we are definitely into that, and we will we will get into this. Uh, there's massive opportunity. It's just not right now our key focus, but basically in one uh, one year, the latest we will double down on on that. And obviously, it really goes about automation. Uh, that's like equipment automation. How do we really also build up new capabilities uh, in our team, but also uh, together with our partners and suppliers on, on on driving automation forward? Very important. Same for digitization. Another thing that we are really interested in, because you don't forget, we, we have 70 container terminals around the world. We service all of them. So our guys are flying around the world all the time. And we believe that uh, new technologies like uh, virtual reality or augmented reality have massive um, uh, productivity mm-hmm. uh, gains. Uh, for instance, if you do certain inspections at uh, some of our equipment, um, whether it's in the United States or Japan or in, in Australia, you know, instead of sending people around, um, you, you can you can do this much simpler, much faster with these kind of new technologies. And this is where we make use of. We're also starting to look into usage of uh, drones uh, to to do uh, some of the work that is also sometimes very very unsafe, right? So it's, uh, climbing these cranes, they are like 50, 60 meters high, sure. right? So that's uh, that's dangerous stuff. Yeah. So yeah, this is this is how we. Look into technology, but it's uh, it's definitely something that's on top of my list for the year to come. Awesome. What's and then and just thinking more from the business in general, what's next? What are the, the, the big projects coming down the line or the big initiatives? The big initiatives is first I need to communicate to the global industry that we are the only player who are ready to work with 
the winners of the future right? in terms of the suppliers to the container terminal industry. Right, This landscape is changing and uh, I just need to make sure that this gets communicated to the entire industry, that everybody is truly aware of that. That, uh, that includes working on the brand, I exactly. guess, some social media, all yes. that kind of cool stuff. Yeah, there's lots of marketing campaigns, like social media. There's a lot of activity going on uh, and planned. It, it's in the pipeline on that, but it's also uh, obviously like attending certain events uh, and uh, industry events and, and having conversations there, or panel discussions and presentations. And that is really also tailored to extracting you know, attracting uh, new new customers because I also foresee quite a massive um, drop in demand in this industry. And the, the reason for that is quite simple. If you raise interest rates by 5 or 6% in a time span of one and a half years, the investment picture just changes dramatically, right? So any kind of business case that makes sense in an environment with 1% or 0% interest rates and 0% inflation, you know, looks very different in an environment mm-hmm. where you have interest rates of 6 7%, right? And maybe inflation of 2 3 4%. Sure. So, so... What's going to happen is investment is going to drop massively, especially for these very capital-heavy industries like like ours. But where the focus will go is towards lifetime extension of, of the existing of stuff that you have. And uh, positioning our company in the right way right, that we are the ones who offer the right services for the future demand and communicating that properly and clearly and easy to understand through all the different channels this is really, really important because uh, it, you know, it, it just it will change uh, massively, and, and I need to compensate for the loss of the <laughs> new business. I need to, you know, increase the, the the other business that will be important in future. And for that, I just need to invest in branding and marketing and uh, work with companies like us. Well, look, that has been an absolutely fascinating. Thank you for sharing your experience. Thank you for giving us that insight into your industry. Um, I would love to do this again. So maybe in 12 months' time, when you've a bit further down the line of the marketing journey, come back on, do part two, and tell us about your experiences from that point of view. That would be fantastic. Um, Just before we wrap things up, where can people come to meet you? Obviously, we'll put your links to your social media, we'll put company websites and all that kind of stuff in the show notes. But have you got any events that you're going to be attending coming up or anything like that where people can come and see you? Yeah, I'm quite active now in the European Chamber of Commerce and there, for instance, the manufacturing CEO or on tables where I would like to attend and also have some speeches. I think another interesting uh, conference is planned early December 2023. That's the China Outlook Conference in 2024 um, that will be in Shanghai. And there uh, I would like to give a speech also about um, de-risking and uh, uh, de-risking especially with regards to supply chains coming out of uh, China because um, yeah, that's really where I have a lot of experience and where I'm really sitting at the uh, at the center of the conversation. So yeah, would would be great to, to meet you guys there or anybody who is interested and uh, would love to catch up. Cool. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Kai, thanks again. It's been a great episode. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Radical Global Marketing Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed making it. Join us next time for more insight, best practice case studies, and shared experiences from some of the world's most radical global marketing leaders.